Good morning. morning. All right, let's begin with prayer this morning. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your truth. We ask that your spirit will enlighten our minds. Help us to draw clearer to you, uh, closer to you and be more effective in, in spreading this end-time message to bring more people to your kingdom. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Just one announcement. I uh, posted on our website this week a PowerPoint program. It's about COVID through a biblical worldview, 12 lies, inciting fear and dividing society. If you haven't seen that, that is where I'm going to start referring people when they uh, ask for the questions on COVID. So I hope they won't have to spend more class time on going over it. It, it. it really is fairly comprehensive and should hit most of the major points people have inquired about what's going on with our society. And it's all referenced with the, uh, with the references. The PowerPoint slides are there for you to download, and you can take those links, and you can go to the original sources for all the points that I'm making and, and double-check them. All right, we're doing Lesson 6 in the quarterly Present Truth in Deuteronomy, and the title is, For What, great, for what Nation Is There So Great? And in Sabbath's lesson, the points out that uh, in the first three chapters of Deuteronomy is a history of the Lord's deliverance, and what the people had to, uh, been through up to that point. Then the, uh, chapter 4, Deuteronomy, starts off with a conjunction, and now. Or, also translated, so now. And in the NIV, it's translated, here now. And then the lesson states the following. In the lesson, it states, That's why the first verb that appears after so now is shama. The, the same verb in the same form as used in the beginning of the shema prayer. And it means hear or listen or obey, a verb repeated all through Deuteronomy. Thus the chapter begins, So now, Israel, because of what I have done for you, you must obey the following. What do you think of this interpretation of what the Bible is saying? Understand, what the lesson has written is commentary. It's opinion. It's expert theological opinion, but it is not the word of God when we read our lesson. Any more than what I say is the word of God. These things are what I say. I'm not here to tell you what to think. I'm here to stimulate you to think, and this is one of the reasons why I like the SDA quarterly, because it's thought-provoking. It stimulates us to think, and uh, it requires me to do my own reasoning and evaluating and checking the evidences for myself. And that's what we always want to do. So it's a very helpful tool. So what do you think, though, of this interpretation? How would you like this interpretation applied to someone who's, who does a good thing for you, some, some person? Maybe, maybe a real kindness. Maybe a, a good Samaritan rescues you and saves you from a fire. Or a, a person, a stranger, donates bone marrow that saves you from leukemia. Or, or someone pays off your mortgage so you don't get evicted from your house. And they did this without you asking. They just became aware of your need, and they voluntarily did this for you. And after the emergency, the crisis has passed, after the things are settled, the person comes to you one day and says, now, because of what I've done for you, you must obey and follow me. Do you like that? Sounds like a mandate. Sounds like a mandate. <laughs> what do you think of this method of getting people to follow you? This method of achieving obedience. Will it work to get trustworthy and faithful followers in your human relationships? 
do a kindness, and then go to them after the kindness that they didn't ask for, and say, now that I've done this kindness for you, you must follow me. Will it work? Will it work for God to get trustworthy and faithful followers? No, it won't, because it is presented, as this theological interpretation in the quarterly presents it, it's presented as a debt one owes, and this is a common theological thought. We're indebted, we owe him. And an obligation to pay back. The act of deliverance is revealed to not be an act of love then, but an act of manipulation, an act of indenturing, an act of getting people in debt so they can be controlled through their sense of obligation. It's a violation of liberty. So because I recognize design law and, and the law of liberty and how love functions, as I read that, I immediately had a, a, a caution flag go up in my mind, and I said, you know what? I need to read the scripture for myself. So we're going to read the, the, the scripture where they are getting this. Uh, Deuteronomy 4.1, and this is what it says. Hear now, O Israel, the decrees and laws I'm about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may, and may go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. Did you hear God saying in the actual scripture, because of what I've done, you must now obey and follow? That's actually not what was said. That's an interpretation, a common interpretation if you read scripture through the lens of human law. But if you understand design law, then this is my interpretation. Okay? And you're free to reject it as well. But this is my interpretation. Remember what I have revealed to you, what I have done for you, how I have delivered you, how nature itself is under my control. Recognize I don't need anything from you, but want to bless you and free you. So listen, comprehend, understand, learn what I am teaching you about myself and my laws, which are how reality operates. Follow them if you want to be healthy and happy and succeed and overcome your enemies in the world. Which way do you think, which interpretation, my interpretation or this other one is more accurate with what you understand the scripture of God to be saying here in Deuteronomy? You see, the design law lens makes all the difference. Is God saying the same thing to you and me today? We're to remember how the Lord has delivered us in the past. All that he's done for, human his, for humanity through history. And for each one of us personally. And then, and then under this umbrella of historic love that God has revealed and done for us, we're to learn about him, his character, his, his design laws and methods and principles. And, and if we want to succeed, be healthy, be happy, overcome the obstacles in this world today, then we still need to live in harmony with God's design laws for life. Yes? If you read verse 3 and on, it goes back to Baal Peor and how God punished, quotes, unquote, people who disobeyed. Yeah, we're, and, and that is in the lesson today. So, so hopefully we will get, get to that, I'm hoping. Um, and what happened there, and what that was about. The lesson asks us to read Deuteronomy 4, verse 2. And it says, Do not add to what I command you, and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give you. Do not add, do not subtract. And what does it mean? Does it mean the words that were written? Some people get very literalistic, and they think about, okay, you can't paraphrase, a, you know, I can't paraphrase the, the Bible because you can't add to or take away. Well, if you can't add to the words or take away the words, you can't translate. You have to read an Aramaic, Greek, 
in Hebrew. Because every translation adds words or takes away words in order to try to get the concept of cross. So if you read in the, in the King James, you'll see a lot of words that are italicized. Those italicized words were done by the translator. that you know those words are not in the original. Those were added words to help bring the meaning across. And so our view of inspiration is God does not inspire the words. He inspires the prophetic penmen with ideas or truths, and they choose the words to best convey those truths. And so the idea is to bring across the truths with the best words for the population you're dealing with. But adding and subtracting, then, is not about the actual words. It's about the actual realities that he's communicating. And so here's an example of actual adding and subtracting. Adding korban as a rule, where you could designate your property to be given to the temple at your death so you don't use your property to honor your parents. That's adding a rule and subtracting the honoring of your mother and father. That's what this is really talking about, that type of adding and subtracting. The lesson asks, why would anyone want to change God's law? And then they provide a quote from Selected Messages, book 2, page 107, and um, they give part of the paragraph. I want to read the whole paragraph. This is what it says. Satan has been persevering and untiring in his effort to prosecute the work he began in heaven to change the law of God. He has succeeded in making the world believe the theory he presented in heaven before his fall that the law of God was faulty and needed revising. A large part of the professed Christian church, by their attitude, if not their words, show that they have accepted the same error. But if one jot or tittle of the law of God has been changed, Satan has gained on earth that which he could not gain in heaven. He has prepared his delusive snare, hoping to take captive the church and the world. But not all will be taken in the snare. A line of distinction is to be drawn between children of obedience and children of disobedience, the loyal and true and the disloyal and the untrue. The two great parties are developed, the worshipers of the beast in his image and the worshipers of the true and living God. So, what did you hear? Satan began a war in heaven over attacking God's law by advancing a theory That God's law was faulty and needed revising. That's the theory. What is revealed in that statement? The embedded, hidden lie in Satan's attack. There's an embedded, hidden lie that is the basis for the allegation the law needs revising or improving. What kind of law can you revise? Amend, change, update? What kind? Imposed law, made up rules. Okay, that's it. So the embedded lie right there is that God's law is actually changeable. It's not design law. The same author, if you remember, wrote in Mount of Blessings 109 that uh, in heaven service is not rendered in the spirit of legality. When Satan began his uh, uh, rebelled against the law of Jehovah, the thought that there was a law came to the angels of an awakening of something unthought of. Think that through. The only law that is in operation upon which people actually live and harmonize with that they're not informed about are design laws. Law of gravity type stuff. 
And then, you remember, this is our of Ages 761. The opening of the great controversy, Satan declared the law of God could not be obeyed. That justice was inconsistent with mercy and that should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Human law requires the infliction of punishment. Design law requires healing of the damage because the punishment is inherent. You tie a plastic bag over your head, nobody has to inflict punishment when you break the law of respiration. You step off a building, nobody has to inflict punishment. You decide to smoke a pack of cigarettes today, nobody has to inflict punishment. They have to heal the damage, restore you to harmony with the law, or else you're going to die. This is design law. It's the reality of God's law. And so this idea that sin has to be punished by infliction is Satan's life in the beginning. God's law is nothing but made-up rules. And do you see when this idea was accepted in heaven by the angels in heaven, there was rebellion, there was division. Love was damaged by accepting this idea. And do you see how Christianity has been infected with this idea? Christianity. This is what, when you ever read the same author, she talks about Romanism. Understand what Romanism or papalism or papal powers. Um, Many Adventists are completely lost in the weeds arguing of over the Eucharist versus the communion wafer, arguing over um, sprinkling versus immersion or Sabbath versus... They're arguing over the details of the ritualistic practice and missing the entire point. Romanism is about imperialism. Romanism is an authoritarian system based on Rome where you have a supreme leader who makes up rules, laws, including canon law, that the Pope makes, and everyone else is obliged to keep them. And if you don't, then you're a heretic that deserves punishment. And the punishment will be brought by the powers that the church can wield. In the Dark Ages, the church wielded the powers of the state. The church has been restrained, but the church still operates on the same basic premise. And then all the world drinks the wine of Babylon, drinks the intoxicating influence, and the whole world believes it is right and just to pass laws and to use power of the state to punish people who don't obey what you think they should obey. This is what righteousness is considered, or justice is considered to be. It's the entire intoxicating of the world. And and the Protestant Reformation got some of the little details uh, corrected, but most of the Protestant world still embraces the wine of Babylon that God's law functions like human law. That's Romanism. It's not true. We're called, through angels' message, to prepare the world for Christ's return, to worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. We're called back to to worship the designer, the creator of reality, whose laws are the basis of life. So the Christian world today is advancing the same lie through the penal legal theologies that teach God is the source of inflicted pain, suffering, and death in order to punish sin. That payment, that Jesus died to pay a legal penalty to God or our legal debt so that, uh, or to pay God off in some way. Jesus is in heaven pleading to his Father's blood so his Father won't hurt us. That righteousness and, justice, uh, righteousness and justice is found through the infliction of just penalties for law-breaking. And this type of thinking, when you think that way, you think that's right and just, leads members of the church to join with the state to enforce the state's laws when they believe uh, uh, that it is proper to do so, including the violation of consciences that we see happening in the world today. 
We can never achieve God's goals through Satan's methods. And God's goal is not deed performance or behavior control. His goal is love, friendship, loyalty, trustworthiness, faithfulness, unity. You can't get that through legislation. You get that only through the application of God's methods into the hearts and minds. So understand that the world has rejected God. As the world rejects God, as the world rejects God, it falls under Satan's influence. Hearts of people become corrupt. Design laws of God are rejected. Arbitrary rules and standards are elevated. Reject God. You don't practice his principles. You fall under the satanic delusion. You become more fearful, more survival-driven. Therefore, you want more control to make you feel safe. Therefore, you want to pass more laws. You want to control more people. And and the hearts and minds of people are corrupted. So what happens is darkness is called light, and light is called darkness. Truths are called hate speech, and hate speech is called truth. I'll let you just look in society and see that right now. It's absolutely true. Males are called females and females are called males. Merit is called discrimination and discrimination is called equity. Practices that harm are advanced as cures. Policies that injure are presented as treatments to heal. And society decays. The social fabric that makes a society healthy frays. And greater corruption occurs. This results in more fear, greater perversion, greater pain, suffering, sickness, both physical and moral. And people... Uh, And people respond by implementing more of Satan's methods, more laws, more demands, mandates, rules, coercive government, and greater violations of liberty, which always destroys love, damages individual development, and drives to greater rebellion, division in society, and injustice and human suffering. This is what we're seeing in the world, because people have forgotten God. They've embraced the godless worldview. Consider the following quote written by Ellen White, February 26, 1914. 1914. A little more, a year and a couple months before her death. It's in Review and Herald, February 26, 1914. Had Israel taken the messages of the prophets emphasizing the value of the great things of, of God's law, they would have been spared the humiliation that followed. It was because they persisted in turning aside from the law that God was compelled to allow their enemies to take them captive. Pause. What law? Imposed rules or God's design laws of love that he revealed through all of his prophets. Remember, over and over again, the prophetic message of justice is helping the needy, loving the enemy, being kind to the stranger, etc., etc. This is the justice over and over again through the prophets. 
the language that God was compelled to allow the enemies to take. I mean, he didn't want to. Yes. He was trying to restrain yep. every, every energy. He was compelled, and, yep. and, and he was compelled by design law, by reality. And we're going to unpack that here in the next paragraph or so. It says, my people, now quoting Hosea, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, was the message to them through Hosea. Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will reject you seeing you have forgotten the law of God. What knowledge have they rejected? Creator worship, whose laws design law, truth, love, freedom, and preferred pagan gods who make up rules and require appeasement. They forgot reality. Keep going. In trial and affliction, they were to learn lessons that under circumstances more favorable, they had refused to learn. This is the compelling part right here. It's the design law. Think this through. I'll give you a simple example. If you have a child who refuses to learn the fa- in the favorable circumstance of instructions, verbal instructions, favorable, not to touch a hot stove, they will learn eventually through the unfavorable circumstances of touching, the trial of touching and the affliction of getting burned. They will learn through trial and affliction. The trial of actually touching. I tried it out. I tried it. It's a trial. I tried it. They will learn through trial and affliction. If you don't learn through the favorable. This is not something God, okay, you didn't pay me? I'm going to get you now. This is a reality. This is a design law. I, I, I instructed you. I led you. I protected you. I taught you. You still wanted to go that direction? Okay. If, that's, if you insist, insist, insist on touching the hot stove then you will have through your trial the affliction of what it brings. You're trying it out. Next. In every age, transgression of God's law has been accompanied by the same result. What's the result of transgressing God? Legal trouble with inflicted punishment? No. In every you, you, you violate the laws of health. In every age, you get health consequences. This is what it, what it means. The days of Noah, when every precept of the law was set aside, iniquity became so deep and widespread that God could no longer bear with it. Why? Because God lost patience? He really isn't infinite in love and infinite in mercy and infinite in grace. He, his cup of patience filled up and he couldn't take any more. I just can't take it anymore. Or he could no longer bear with it because to bear any longer than he did would have been the loss of Noah, the last family on earth who would work with him, and the destruction of the avenue through which Messiah was coming. And he loses the whole race. He, he bore with it as long as reality would allow him to bear with it before he needed to act in order to keep open avenue for Messiah. It's reality-based. This is our God, the God of reality. In the time of Abraham, the people of Sodom openly defied God and his law and there followed the same wickedness, the same corruption, the same unbridled indulgence that had marked the antediluvian world. The time preceding the downfall of the northern kingdom was one of similar disobedience and of similar wickedness. What happens when people reject the creator God and design law? What happens? Understand why it happens. It's unavoidable. They become corrupt. They become selfish. They become uh, uh, governed by fear, survival instincts, exploiting of others, taking advantage, destroying, hurting, blaming, lying, cheating. 
manipulating, controlling, advancing through power and, and, and might, the constant warfare, it's unavoidable. God's law was counted as a thing of naught. And this opened the floodgates of iniquity upon Israel. What would happen in a society today if it was actively taught? There's no such things as laws of health. You can eat whatever you want. You never have to exercise. You can smoke, drink, take whatever drugs. It has no negative consequence on you, whatever. And people believed it and did it. If they, if they threw off the laws of health and did whatever they want anytime they want it. Wait, we live in that society, don't we? It's been done. And what's happened? What's happening? Un, uh, unbridled sickness, disability, corruption of character, minds, floodgate of health problems. Can you hear me the quote? And as it was then, so it is today. As it was then, so it is today. Men boast of the wonderful progress and enlightenment of the age, but God sees the earth filled with guilt and violence. Men declare that the law of God has been abrogated, that the Bible is not authentic, and as a result, a tide of evil, such as has seldom been seen since the days of Noah and the days of apostate Israel is sweeping over the world. Do we live in a world where the belief in God is denied. That was written when? 1914. 1914. Yep. Do we live in an age where God is denied? Where the institutions of society declare there is no God? That we evolve from lower life forms? Where the leaders of industry are godless. What is the result of rejecting the knowledge of God? It's unavoidable. What's happening? Keep here, here's, here's the next words in the quote. Lawlessness, dissipation. Dissipation means the wasting of resources and assets. Wasting of resources. Lawlessness, dissipation, extravagance, and corruption are coming in upon us as an overwhelming flood. Nobility of soul, gentleness, piety are bartered away to gratify the lust for forbidden things. The taking of human life is a matter of daily occurrence. The terrible record of crime daily committed for the sake of gain is enough to chill the blood and fill the soul with horror. Are we seeing this every day? Just look at what's happening in our society and the world. The time is right upon us when there will be sorrow in the world that no human balm, remedy, no human balm treatment, no human balm can heal. The time is right upon us. We're right about to be on the time. This is 117 years ago. Maybe we're in that time. Are we in that time 117 years later? Uh, the time is right upon us where there will be sorrow in the world that no human balm can heal. Are we living in this time? What is the cause of the sorrow? And why can human balm not hear it, heal it? The cause is the rejection of the knowledge of God and his design laws and the embracing of imperialism and righteousness through more governmental control and governmental mandates and the coercion of conscience in order to save lives. This is the cause 
rejecting reality-based assessments and going through Romanism through our governments. And you can, and, and hu- no human medications or treatments or laws and interventions will heal it. Here's the very next words. Uh, no human bomb, bomb can heal. Very next words. The Spirit of God is being withdrawn from the world. Why? This is, again, reality-based. Where's the dwelling place of the Spirit of God on earth? The Spirit temple. So as billions of human beings are brought into the satanic delusion that either there is no God or God functions like a Roman dictator, the enforcer of inflicted punishments, either way, that's, that's Baal worship. That's, that's the false construct worship. Either way... They're hardening their hearts and closing their spirit temple. And when we close our hearts, the spirit temple respects our freedom and the spirit respects the freedom and the spirit is withdrawn when billions are hardening. And what is the result? Continue with the quote. The spirit of God is being withdrawn from the world. Disasters by sea and land follow one another in quick succession. How frequently we hear of earthquakes and tornadoes, of destruction by fire and flood, with great loss of life and property. We're not hearing about anything about that, are we? <laughs> it's every day. Apparent, apparently, apparently, these calamities are capricious outbreaks of seemingly disorganized, unregulated forces. But in them, God's purpose may be read. They are one of the means by which he seeks to arouse men and women to a sense of their danger. Why did the, did the calamities come? The first reason, God's using power to cause the calamities? Or God's withdrawing his presence and Satan is getting more and more control and power on the earth and he is the destroyer and he's the one that's disrupting. And why does God allow it? He allows it to wake up the sleeping saints, the ten virgins, wise, five wise, five foolish, all snoozing, all sleep. And this, these circumstances are designed to wake people up to the reality in which we live so that we can shine the light of God's character, his methods, his principles, standing for truth, loving our enemies, praying for those who would persecute us while leaving other people free or, but of refusing to bow the knee to the imperial systems of this world, refusing to go along with the imposed law mandates that coerce the conscience of people into the guise of saving lives. We don't go. We don't do it. This is quoting from Scripture in Isaiah. No, this is, excuse me, quoting the New Testament. As the days of, as the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and knew not until the flood came and took them all away. So shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Watch therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord comes. The prophecies, continue on to quote, the prophecies of judgment delivered by Amos and Hosea were tempered with prophecies of future glory. Prophecy of future glory. According to Hosea, the children of Israel were to abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice, without an image and without an ephod and without a teraphim 
Afterward, the prophet continued, shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. Fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. God doesn't just warn of coming tragedy. He encourages with the promise of deliverance for the faithful. And when is this prophecy, this prophecy of deliverance to occur? In the latter days. Fear the Lord. Does fear the Lord bring any of the Bible text to your mind? Revelation 14. There you go. Fear God and give glory to him for the hour's judgment. This is the same message in the Old Testament right here. And so continue with the quote. The, uh, Shall the fear of the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. And this author goes on to state, this prophecy is to reach its complete fulfillment in the gathering from all the nations of the people preparing for the second coming of Christ. The remnant of Israel is symbolized by a woman representing the Lord's chosen church on the earth. It's not about genetics. It's never been about genetics. It's always been about character and faith. Do you have the faith of Abraham to open your heart and receive the indwelling spirit to be transformed, to have the character of a trustworthy friend? Then you're an heir to Abraham, uh, a descendant of Abraham, an heir according to the promise. Behold, he says, I allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably to her. This is uh, the prophet speaking to the people. God speaking, I allure her, the church, the bride, and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably. What does this mean, wilderness? Wilderness. The wilderness is away from what? What is the wilderness, wilderness not? It's not a city. There's a message. Fear God and give glory to him. The hour of judgment has come. Come out of the wilderness and enter the city of Babylon. Is the, No, no. Come out of Babylon. Come out of the city. Come out of the systems of the world. Come into the wilderness. Come to the garden where the creator God exists in worship where nature operates on his design laws. And I will give her vineyards from, uh, from, from, their four, from the tents and the valley of Achor and the door of hope and She shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the days when she came out of the land of Egypt and it shall be at that day. At what day? What day? At at what day? At At the time of the second coming. The people, the generation living when he comes. Says the Lord, at that day, at, at, at the time of this complete fulfillment of this prophecy, which is the people preparing to meet Jesus, at that day, saith the Lord, you will call me Ishi, my husband, and shall call me no more Bali, my Lord. For I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. We are the people preparing to call God my husband, meaning the lover of our souls. We will be restored to at one meant. The two shall become one. I pray that they would be one, that you and I are one, that we have this unity, the lover of souls. We have an intimacy with God. We will be united in love and will no longer call God my Lord, meaning my master. 
we shall be friends and not servants. This means we come back to worship God as creator and reject the false Balaam, no longer call him Balaam, dictator God of imposed rules, which means, again, we worship him who made the heavens and the earth. We reject the design law constructs of the human imposed law lie of the kingdoms of this world and all the penal substitutionary theological constructs that are based on it. Continue with the quote. In the last days of earth's history, again, where are we? The last days of earth's history, God's covenant with his commandment-keeping people is to be renewed. What is the covenant? The new covenant. I will pay the legal penalty to my father so he won't have to kill you, and he will declare you to be legally adjusted even though you're still unrighteous and wicked in heart. Is that the covenant? I will write my law where? Heart and mind. The covenant is healing, regeneration, recreation, Christ's likeness of character. In that day, I will make a covenant, and I will betroth thee unto me forever. Think the word betroth. I will betroth me unto me forever. I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, and in judgment, and in loving kindness, and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord your God. What is life eternal? Jesus said in John seventeen three. You might know. We will know the Lord. We'll be united to God in heart and mind. We'll be betrothed. We'll have intimacy. We'll be at one. Having his design law of love written in our hearts. Consider what law, consider what law binds a husband and a wife. Well, it's clearly the law of the state you were married in. Isn't that what binds them together? No, it is not. These legal things that the Supreme Court rules about marriage has no bearing on what binds hearts and minds together. None whatsoever. People can be married by the state and be the worst enemies to each other. The law that binds hearts together, and this is the metaphor God is using, this is a living law. It is a design law. It is a law of reality. It is a law of love and truth and freedom. And God is saying he will heal our hearts, take away our fear, and unite us in love with him. And it is an eternal love with an eternal outcome. It's an eternal relationship. Continue on with the quote. And it shall come to pass in that day. Notice how many times this author keeps saying that. In what day is this going to come to pass? Under, it's our day, today. We're living in the day. In that day, right now. I will hear, saith the Lord. I will hear the heavens and they shall hear the earth, and the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil. It's a metaphor, folks. Apply the metaphorical reality application. The corn. What is the corn? What is corn made into? Okay, and it has several different applications here. Remember the metaphor of the, of the little shoot that grows up? Okay. The wave sheaf. Who's the wave sheaf? The corn. Jesus is the word made flesh. The corn represents Jesus, the living word, the written word. Jesus is the corn. He's the bread, the bread of life that we are to take, internalize the truth. 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. Unless you eat my flesh, drink my blood, you'll no part with me. So Jesus is the word that we internalize, and the word destroys the lies and wins us to trust. And then when we're one to trust, we open the heart, and the next thing, uh, where were we here, is the wine. And the wine is symbolic of the blood. And the blood is symbolic of the sinless life of Christ. And so once we're one to trust by the word that's destroyed the lies and we've opened the heart, he pours his love into our hearts. We have the life of Christ. And then the oil. The oil is the oil of anoint your head with oil. It's the oil of the Holy Spirit, which develops us and transforms us and renews us and empowers us. And they shall hear Jezreel, and I will sow her unto me in the earth. And I will have mercy upon her. He's talking about the church still. I'll sow her in the earth. God is sowing a people in the earth. And I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which are not my people, thou art my people. And they shall say, thou art my God. What is described? The application of the righteousness of Christ into any willing human heart. And brings us back into unity with Christ. Continuing on with the quote. In that day. <laughs> what day? I mean, you're getting, a, you're getting an emphasis here. Just prior to the second coming of Christ. In that day, the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. From every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, there will be those who will gladly respond to the message, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. What will happen in this people who are called the remnant? Who are reconciled to God? Who have the covenant relationship? Who call God my husband rather than my master? Who have their hearts united? What happens in this people? God's law, that has God's law restored in them? Notice the next words. This is what happens. They will turn from every idol that binds them to this earth and will worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. This is what they will do. They reject the imposed law lies. They don't worship a God who's like Baal. They don't worship a punishing dictator who's the source of inflicted pain and suffering. They worship the creator who was revealed in Jesus Christ. And by worshiping him and beholding him, they become like him. Continue with the quote. They will free themselves from every entanglement and will stand before the world as monuments of God's mercy. Monuments. That will be monumental. <laughs> but we will stand as monuments. We are God's evidence. We are God's witnesses. We're his lights. We're his revelation. We're the living monuments of the living law of God. The law of God cannot be understood written on stone. It can only be truly seen in living beings who live the law. And we are his monuments at this time in history to live the law. And God will look at the universe and say, look, just like he did with his friend Job, my friends, they're perfect and righteous in all their ways. This is what he's looking for to see his self and his people. And in closing... Obedient to every divine requirement, they will be recognized by angels and by men as those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This is our privilege. 
to receive Christ, to be reconciled to God, to have our hearts united with him, to have his law written in our heart, to have fear and selfishness purged, to have our spirit temples cleansed, to be lights in the darkness, to to love our enemies and pray for those who abuse us and reject the imposed laws of this world, to say no to the human justice system, and to live in harmony with our creator God. This is what we're called for. And do you see the incredible pressures being placed upon us by the systems of this world? So what was God's goal for Israel? What did he want them to accomplish beyond simply being the bloodline through whom Jesus would come? That was part of it, but it was more than that. Didn't he want to reveal his principles, his design laws for life lived out in the people there? Didn't he want them to be that light? What is God wanting from his people today? From this generation on earth today? What's he wanting from us? Isn't it the same? To have a people so surrendered to him that his law is the principles upon which they live and abide. That they reveal him in the way they treat other people. And so Revelation 12, 17 Then the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, or the remnant, who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Does obeying God's commandments mean having the right list of rules and behavioral conformity? That's not what it means. Yes, our behavior will be in harmony with God's law, but we can conform behavior externally without having a renewed heart. It's not about that. It's having the law written on the heart and then holding to the testimony of Jesus. Does holding to the testimony of Jesus mean belonging to an organization that possesses the writings of dead prophets? (laughs) If we have membership in an organization and that organization have writings from inspired prophets of God, does that mean we're part of the remnant? They're holding to the testimony of Jesus. Some teach that. It's not what it means. Remember, the Jews who crucified Christ had the writings of dead prophets. It means holding to the same testimony about God and revealing and teaching that same testimony, the testimony that Jesus gave. And what testimony did Jesus give? If you've seen me, you've seen This is those who hold to the test. God is not like the imperial dictator. God so loved the world that he required a blood payment of an innocent sacrifice not to kill you. No, that he sent his son. That whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. His son was not sent to condemn the world, but to save the world. God was in the son, reconciling the world to himself. See, the testimony of Jesus is God is exactly the opposite of what Satan says. His law is exactly the opposite of what Satan says. And it's pretty much the opposite of what most of Christianity teaches. And this is the purpose of God's people on earth today. The true remnant of God are to live in harmony with his design laws, to reveal his character on the earth, and to give the testimony that Jesus gave about his Father. Call people back to creator worship. And out of this system of imperial Romanism. And this is the second angel's message. The first angel's message is the eternal good news. God is not like that. The second angel's message is to leave the imperial system of Romanism, that system of of imposed legal rules, the Babylonian system, and come back to worship 
Get out of that system. Get your minds and hearts out of it. Monday's lesson focuses our attention on the apostasy at Baal Pure. This was when the Midianites paid Balaam to curse Israel, but Balaam blessed Israel repeatedly and eventually counseled the Midian kings to seduce Israel through pagan worship, through worshiping Baal. The strategy they employed was to send seductive women into the camp under the guise of friendship over a period of months seducing the men, and then Balaam, who was considered by the people to be an actual prophet of God, invited the people to a pagan festival with the Midian, with the Midian in the Midian towns. The pagan festival was a festival that bombarded their senses with music and dancing and seductive dancing and alcohol intoxicating the people, which led to promiscuous and lewd behavior, followed by the worshiping of Baal and offering sacrifices to Baal. This was then followed by pagan rituals being brought into the camp of Israel. God responds by sending a plague. And Moses instructs that the leaders of Israel that participated in the pagan worship and the pagan sacrifices must be put to death by members of their own tribe. As the people were repenting before the tabernacle, one of the Midian, excuse, one of the leaders of Israel brought a Midianite prostitute right into the camp and began to have relations with her in the middle of their repentance. And Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the high priest, took a javelin and thrust it through both of them, killing them both. And at that moment, the plague was stopped. Moses then instructed the people to go to war and wipe out the Midianites. Yes, yes, which they did. They did that. What are your thoughts about these events? A different time. <laughs> A different time. That, that is, that's no question about it. What are your thoughts about these events? What is the context of what is happening? The overarching theme of the Old Testament, there's one central theme of the Old Testament. This has to be understood under that theme. What is the central theme of the Old Testament? It's in Genesis chapter 3. Promised Messiah. Promised Messiah. After Adam and Eve sins, and after they sin, can any human, any human, be saved without Jesus? No. The entire species now, because all are in Adam and Eve, they have changed themselves. They are now infected with a terminal condition. They're dead in trespass and sin. We're born in sin, conceived in iniquity. So we're all born with a condition we didn't choose, but without remedy results in our suffering and death. That's reality. So the whole species now is damaged, corrupt, sick in Adam and Eve. God did not abandon the human species but promised that one of their descendants would be able to cure the condition and provide an avenue, a new trajectory, a new way out, an alternate path for all who exercise faith. They can experience a transformation of heart through the victory of Christ. So the promised seed is going to crush the serpent's head. The whole Old Testament is that theme. God working to bring about the plan that will redeem the species human and Satan working to obstruct or stop the plan. Everything falls under that. 
And this is how we can understand the flood, what we talked about a little while ago. God waited and waited and waited and waited and waited until any further waiting would have resulted in the final person on earth who was righteous and his family being lost and no avenue for Messiah. So he acts not in vengeance or in hostility to hurt, but as a therapeutic intervention to keep open the avenue for Messiah. And every one of those people who, and even the people dying in the flood, because they had been witnessed and preached to for 120 years, the flood wasn't an instantaneous thing for them. The rain began to fall. The geysers broke loose. They were beginning giving evidence. Whoa, maybe Noah was telling the truth. There was opportunity for repentance and salvation, just like the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross lived a rebellious and wicked life uh, up until the point he's being crucified with Christ. His temporal life is about to end, but before it ends, he still has opportunity for repentance. And he did repent. He didn't get a chance to go out and witness. He didn't get to go mission fields. He didn't get to write Bible, Bible study guides. He didn't get to do any righteous at work for the Lord. We don't know if anybody did repent or not, but it was an act of mercy on God's part to keep open avenue for Messiah and to give the antediluvians time to repent. This is the whole Old Testament theme. So what's happening here? Satan is now working, and this is where our focus of Old Testament Scripture keeps narrowing down. We stop focusing on the whole human species because God has said it's through Abraham's descendants the seed is going to come. And we don't focus on Esau's kids because it's, it's not through them. We don't focus on Ishmael. It's not through them. We focus on Jacob's kids. That's where the Bible keeps focusing because this is the theme of the Old Testament. It's what it's about. And here, Satan is continuing his attack to try and destroy the branch of the human family through which Messiah is going to come. And so God intervenes here, just like he did with Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities. He intervenes to keep open the avenue, to cauterize a cancerous lesion that would corrupt. And think about without God's interventions, without the five cities at, at Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities, without them being removed, uh, or excuse me, with them being removed. They were, they were removed. With this intervention here and taking out the Midianites, with, with his interventions to do this, how many tribes were still identifiable and on the earth by the time Jesus came? Two. Two. Two! Even with all these excisions of cancerous lesions around, Satan was still so effective at, at compromising the family that only two tribes were left by the time Jesus came. You can see God was gracious and merciful and patient and long-suffering, only acting therapeutically in the minimalist degree to keep open the avenue for Messiah, because if he doesn't act, all species human is lost. This is the context of what's happening in the Old Testament. And remember, all those who died in every one of these examples I've given you, Sodom, Gomorrah, Flood, here, all of them, sleep death, first death. This is not the punishment for sin death. Punishment for sin death comes at the end of the thousand years, which is uh, after, quote, judgment. This is just nothing more. It's the same quality of death that Daniel died. You will sleep in the dust and wait for the resurrection. It's the same quality of death that Adam died. It's a sleep death, and everybody is resurrected, either in the resurrection of life or the resurrection of damnation, Jesus said. And then at the end of the thousand years, we know what happens there and, and the circumstances and how God reveals again that every person who's outside the city is outside by their own choice. He doesn't act to keep them out. 
Deuteronomy, it asks us to read Deuteronomy 4, 3 and 4. And this is Tuesday's lesson. You saw with your own eyes that the Lord... Uh, we just read that. Never mind. We just went through all that. Okay. Uh, Wednesday's lesson. See if we can get another point or two in. Any questions about that by anybody? The one point that is made is that what other nation is so close to God? What other nation has been given God's glory revealed that clearly? Yes, and that is the point, I think, from the Wednesday's lesson. For what nation is there so great? And the two elements in Wednesday's lesson they point out that are so great are, one, that God is with them. He was there, Shekinah glory, by night and the cloud by day. He, was, he showed up in, in, in person to be with them. So they, their God was real, living, active, and engaging, number one. And he gave them his laws, okay, which were his design protocols. And eventually he gave them a cool theater, to act out the things because they weren't really processing on the uh, actual design law uh, elements on their own. So he gave them a theater to act it out. But the idea here was that, that this was not simply to be rule-keeping. Uh, this was to be a love relationship where they trusted and followed him because they grew in their understanding and appreciation for him. And this was true for anyone. Anyone who did this got the blessings. You didn't have to be part of Israel to get the blessings. Think of the Queen of Sheba. She came and talked to Solomon and left with blessings because she incorporated the truth. Naaman. Naaman did and followed and trusted to the degree he was capable and he got blessings. This is true. It's not about a genetic lineage. It's about participation with the Creator and having a faith relationship with Him and following where He leads. Yeah, and so, any other questions? We'll close with that. All right, gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for the truth that you've revealed to us in Israel and the lessons that they have uh, recorded for us to study. We can see your hand working through all human history, and we are awed by you, your character, your methods, and we so much want to be your people today to remember where you've led in the past, both historically in the history of the human race, but also in our own lives, and then to open our hearts to experience your covenant anew in our hearts that your, your law will be written and we can be your people at this time who live in harmony with your design and are true to the testimony that Jesus gave. We pray in your holy name. Amen.